0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Mission Possible. As Christians, we are called to be on mission, longing and working to see God known and worshipped by people from every culture, from our own city to the ends of the earth. This morning's text, we're actually going to have two packs. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. And First John three seventeen, um, just because of we're, we're kind of kind of covering two two parts together. Which is uh, today we're looking at the call of mission. Uh, l- last week we looked at the heartbeat of mission, which is worship, and that we are on mission for God because God deserves to be worshipped by people from here to the ends of the earth, and that. Our heart should always be to see God worship. Today, we're going to look at the flip side of that coin, which is the call of mission, which is compassion for the lost and suffering. So we're going to look at these two texts, Romans 9, 1 to 3, and 1 John 3, 17. The uh, verses I'm going to be using today are going to be up on the screen. You can follow along or follow along in your Bible or your uh, either in paper or on your iPad or phone. Hear now the word of our living, covenant, sovereign God. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race and 1 John 3.17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In our uh, church history class that uh, we do once a month, we spent a number of months going over the early Christological controversies. This was when different groups kept arising and trying to change the understanding of who jesus was some of the groups wanted to deny his deity some of the groups wanted to deny his humanity and the church stood firm and said no jesus is fully god and fully man and they they hammered that out over the first uh, like 300 years of the church but even after that had happened groups kept arising and trying to distort the picture and some of them said well He was, in a sense, human, but it was absorbed into his deity, or he was kind of divine, but that was really absorbed by his humanity. And there came to be this problem of groups who were either trying to, they were completely trying to divide the deity and the humanity of Christ. He was like two different people. Or they were not distinguishing the deity and humanity of Christ. They had been completely melded into one another. And the church eventually by the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they they fully defined who Jesus was. And one of the important things they said is, look, you have to distinguish between the deity and the humanity of Christ, but you cannot divide the humanity and deity of Christ. Distinguish them from one another. They're not the same thing, but don't divide them. And This principle is really important, not only for understanding who Jesus is or understanding what's going on in the history of the church. I invite you to think through much of our Christian life, the key to living it properly and biblically is distinguishing but not dividing. Understanding the distinctions that are there, but not separating things that God has placed together. And in fact, this is central in understanding mission. Our motivation for mission requires that we distinguish but not divide our passion for God and our desire to see God worshiped from our compassion for our fellow humans and our desire to see them saved and their suffering relieved. They need to be distinguished but not divided. Last week we saw the primacy of God in mission, that the first. And central reason we are on mission is because our God is so great and our passion for him is so deep, we desire to see him worshipped by people here and around the globe, that our God should be worshipped and praised and honored above all. And that is central in mission. Not first our compassion for our fellow human being, but rather our passion for God. However, flowing out of that we're going to now turn this week to our compassion for the lost and suffering in our world now why we do this if you remember last week we looked and we saw that paul began the letter to romans by saying it's through him jesus and for his name's sake that we receive grace and apostleship and we are on mission calling people in it was For the sake of Jesus, we do this, not for the sake of the people, but for the sake of Jesus. But the same Paul, in this letter, the same letter to the same Roman church, when we get to chapter 9 and we look at our text for today, notice how Paul now shifts to compassion for humans. In verse 1, notice he begins by taking a solemn oath of truthfulness. He tells us, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I've broken this into four lines here because Paul is building one upon another. He says, I, I'm telling you the truth. And then if that's not enough, I want you to know I am not lying. And if that is not enough, I want you to know my conscience confirms the truthfulness of what I'm saying. And if that somehow hasn't penetrated in, I'm speaking this in the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying in four different ways that this is an oath I am taking. What I am about to say, I am saying with as much earnestness as a human being can possibly muster. Take careful note. Pay attention of what I'm going to say here. Well, what is it that Paul's going to say? He's got our attention here at this point in the letter. What is he going to say? Well, he tells us in verse 2, I have great sorrow, and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul has been describing the great salvation that we have in Christ through these first eight chapters of the book of Romans. But he now turns and he says, I want you to understand, I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish. This is no shallow thing for Paul. It goes to the core of his being. It is no passing thing for Paul. It is his constant companion, whatever this is that he's going to tell us. And he's adding emphasis again, because he's taken this fourfold oath, and he's now describing what he experiences as both sorrow and anguish, but he says it's great sorrow, and it's unceasing anguish, so that by these things, we won't miss his point. So Paul, what is it that requires a fourfold oath? What is it that causes you this great sorrow and this unceasing anguish? The focus of the sorrow is the loss. Notice in verses three and four, because I've got this unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. there's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Paul here is saying he has sorrow. For his own people, Israel, who are not in Christ. Now, let me be clear. This is not racism or ethnocentrism. Paul is not saying, I just, all I'm really concerned about is my own people. This is not like an American today, and you sometimes hear Americans say this, you know, we're always worried about the rest of the world. We need to worry about ourselves first. That is not what Paul is saying. And the reason we know that is. He is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's call is not even to the people of Israel. His call is to the Gentiles. So this is not Paul saying, I'm only concerned about my own people. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, is saying, I want you to understand, just because I'm called to the Gentiles does not mean I'm not concerned with my fellow Jews. I am very concerned. I have deep, lasting sorrow. And here is why. They have rejected Christ. They had adoption as God's sons under the old covenant. They were given all of the covenant promises that God had made under the old covenant. The word of God had been given to them. Jesus came from that nation. And despite all of that, they have rejected Christ. And Paul says, when I consider that, the pain and the sorrow that fills my heart. Because make no mistake, despite all of those things temple worship, receiving of the law, the covenants, the divine glory, the adoption of sons that came to them through the old covenant despite all of that, they're bound for hell. Let that sink in. They're bound for hell. Paul says, when I consider that, What other response could I have but deep, lasting, unceasing anguish and sorrow? Now, that's the first part. I want to now turn to our other text for just a moment. We're going to tie these two together. And we're going to, again, these first two teachings are laying a foundation that we're going to expand. Because there's another reason for sorrow and action on the part of believers. And that, John tells us, is in 1 John 3.17. And we'll see that these two are really linked. In 1 John 3.17 we read, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Paul, in Romans 9, is talking about the spiritually poor. Despite the fact that they got the temple and the old covenant and all those things, they're spiritually bankrupt. John here is talking about people who are materially poor whatever their spiritual status they are materially poor and john says if you have material possessions and you see someone who does not have material possessions and it does not move you to pity i have a question for you how can you claim that the love of god dwells in you how can you claim you love God if you do not love those who are made in his image and you see them in need and you are not driven to act in their behalf. How can this be? So John is linking love for God with compassion for the suffering. And that is really the same thing Paul's doing in Romans 9, where he has gone through the gospel for eight chapters, and he says, here's what's prompted out of me considering the gospel. I have unceasing anguish for the lost, those who have not embraced the gospel. And John, as we're going to see in a few minutes, has just been talking about the gospel, and he says, and I, because of the gospel, have great pity and sorrow on those who are suffering in this life, who are lacking things materially, and it is because of the gospel. He links the love of God, the love for God, with compassion for the suffering. Our love for God prompts us to love those who are made in his image and to relieve their physical or spiritual suffering and poverty if you and i love god if we have embraced the gospel and by faith have been declared righteous in jesus christ the holy spirit begins a work in us that we cannot behold one who is the image of god and is living either in physical or spiritual poverty and suffering and be unmoved by that if we are unmoved Something is wrong, and what is wrong is something in our own relationship with God. What is wrong is something in our own passion for Christ. If we are living in passion for God, what we talked about last week, it will always usher in compassion for fellow humans. It cannot be otherwise. And so we see in these two texts how this is done. Now, notice the depth of Paul's passion here. I want to go back to Romans 9 because he gives us one more piece of information in verse 3. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, these who are lost. Consider Paul's language, and remember, this is not just hyperbole. He gave us a fourfold oath at the beginning. How deep is Paul's compassion here? If I had the choice, I myself would be cursed. I myself would be cut off. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Let's not play religious games. If I had the choice, I would let God send me to hell. That's how deep my passion for God is and how deep my compassion for the lost is. I My heart beats with compassion for them. I am willing to be cut off and cursed. I, and he Paul knows it can't happen. That's not the way salvation works. But he is taking a serious oath here. This is compassion for the law. And I would point out it's also compassion for those who are suffering physically. I am willing to give of my own blessing and my own benefits for the good of those who are without, whether it is spiritual or whether it is physical. The same principle applies. Because for those who've been around here enough, we're not Gnostic. We don't separate the physical and the spiritual. Okay, that's Gnosticism, not Christianity. Now, that's what we see in our text. I want to take a moment to consider the biblical call to compassion for the lost and the suffering. And the Scripture gives us Three different reasons why we are to have compassion for our fellow human beings. Three different reasons. Number one, we are to have compassion because all humans are the image of God. All humans are the image of God. James chapter 3, the Apostle James puts it this way. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. Notice here, James is going back and he's reflecting on Genesis 1 26 and 27, where we were told here is the foundational truth of every human being you will ever meet. They are the image of God. No matter how broken. No matter how shattered, no matter even what their religion is, no matter what their politics are, no matter how much you like or dislike them, that person is a reflection of the image of God. I remind you, C.S. Lewis one time said, See, we get wrapped around and we think about civilizations and we think of mighty uh, empires and we think they are nothing. I mean, we think they are something, but they are nothing next to the lowliest human being." The lowliest human being is the image bearer of God, and nothing else in creation is. And so James says, How can you praise God and then look at his image and speak cursing? How can you speak one thing of God and another thing of his reflection? Could not be. Not possible. And so James is here telling us that. We do this, and it includes our words and our actions. This is why James has said, faith without works is dead. And so in our words and our actions, how we treat humans is a reflection of how we treat God. This is why you remember, and I spoke about this last week, what's the greatest commandment? When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What is it? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was asked for that, but what does Jesus say? But there's a second one second one is love your neighbor as yourself. He's only asked for one, but he says, but you can't just give one. You have to give both because if you love God, you will love your neighbor. And if you're not loving your neighbor, you don't love God. If you love God, you will love the image of God. If you're not loving the image of God, you don't love God in whose image that person exists. It's why the first half of the Decalogue is here's how you love and worship God. That's the first four commandments. And then flowing out of those are the rest of the commandments that tell you, and here's what that looks like when you're with your neighbor. If you love and worship the one true God, you can't murder and commit adultery and lie and cheat and steal and covet and hate. You can't do that. You can't love God and dishonor God those who are made in the image of God. It's why the Lord's Prayer begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It begins with the glory of God, and then it turns, and notice, give us this day our daily bread. Not, not me, mine, us, our, throughout the whole prayer. When I have focused on God and his kingdom, it immediately turns towards human need. Remember Jesus' need, words. We won't turn there. When Jesus speaks in Matthew 25, remember the famous parable where he's telling all the people and and he says, and on that day they're going to come before me and I'm going to say, hey, when I was there, you saw me in need and you didn't give to me. And they're going to say, Lord, when did we see you in need? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? And what's Jesus' answer? You saw one in my image in that way, and you didn't give a cup of water to them, you denied the same cup of water to me. We want to try and get around that. Jesus isn't interested in us getting around that. He's interested in the weight of it settling on us. What all this means is how we view, speak about, and treat any other human being whoever they are, the words you speak about them, the way you view them, the way you treat them, is how you speak about God. It is how you view God. It is how you treat God. When you see that person, okay? And I remind you, Jesus to drive this home tells parables like the Good Samaritan. Remember that? He picks the people that they would not like and he makes them front and center and says, the way you treat that person, you don't like their politics. You don't like their faith. You think they are an undermining of who we are. The way you speak of them is how you speak of Jesus. There is no separation." Not because I say so, because Jesus says so over and over again. Passion for God always leads to compassion for those made in his image. If we lack compassion for people, it is a sure sign we lack passion for God. And we have put something else in his place. There is something else I long for more than. Than God receiving the glory and praise he is due. My country, my security, my finances, my family, whatever it is, when it leads to lack of compassion for the lost and suffering, it's a sure sign I love something more than I love Jesus. Friends, that should rock you to your core because we all face this. Second reason. True faith compels us to show compassion to the weak and suffering. Even if we weren't believers, the first thing I just said is true. Every human being has the image of God stamped on their soul, and they recognize the image in someone else. We spend our lives trying to stamp that out. But you don't even have to be a believer to understand that. But we as believers not only have that added on top of it, true faith compels us. Show compassion to others. I'll look in James again briefly. In James 1.27, we're told, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, we could do a whole sermon series on both of those, and we evangelicals tend to focus on the last phrase, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. But James says it's both, not either or. And if you're keeping yourself from being polluted by the world, here's the first way you can do it. Look after orphans. Look after widows in their distress. True living faith looks after orphans and widows, like those who might be fleeing from ISIS. It looks after them. It cares for them. And that's its first concern not the other idols that might make it not want to look at them with compassion. Like my own country, America. True faith and worship fuels compassion for the weak and suffering in our world. Our love for God compels us to love them as well. Remember John's words in our text. How can the love of God be in you if you see the suffering and you don't engage to help? How can it be in you? The third thing, which piles on top even further for us as believers, is the gospel itself. We are gospel centered, and the gospel itself compels us to compassion. Our text. This morning includes 1 John 3:17, but I want to back up and show you verse 16 because it's always the gospel is the root, and then us keeping the law is the fruit. That's always the way it is. So notice here in 1 John 3:16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. God says this isn't a philosophical question or problem. Here's how you know what love is: the gospel tells you what love is Jesus Christ looked at us in our physical and spiritual poverty and suffering and he came and he sacrificed himself for us and so then John says and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him how can the love of God be in him the root is verse 16 the gospel Christ has lived and died for us. The fruit of that, when we have embraced the gospel by faith, is we lay our lives down for others as well. We see suffering, and we extend ourselves to help as well. Not to earn God's favor, but because we already have it in the gospel. The scripture is replete with the call to remember how God has delivered and forgiven us, and to extend that to others. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins and trespasses and debts as we forgive those who trespassed against us, right? See, if I wrote that prayer, you could say, that I don't like Brett's theology and I'm not going to do it. The only problem is Jesus gave us that prayer, and we're told to pray that. Lord, forgive me like I'm forgiving them. Same way I'm doing it, Lord, I want you to forgive me. If that doesn't scare you, you're not thinking. Okay? We're told, forgive as Christ forgave you. Love just like Jesus has loved you. It's the same thing. Flowing out of the gospel is always this compassion for others. Now, that's the three reasons. We're the image of God through faith, compels and produces this in us, and the gospel, at its core, the very thing we reflect on every day and out of which we live, calls us to that. Now, let me give just a couple of examples of compassion so we can kind of picture these. We've got the two examples in our text, Paul and what John has written. There's a couple of others. Moses, if you remember, Moses has gone up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he comes back, And when he comes back down the mountain, what are the people doing? They're worshiping the golden calf, and and also, how are they worshiping the golden calf? What's going on when it says they got up and went in pagan revelry? That's a nice way of putting it. What does it mean they were doing? They were having an orgy. That's what they're doing. They're all dancing around naked and having an orgy. Okay? Now, What is Moses' prayer going to be for these idolaters who are engaging in this sexual confusion and sin? So Moses said, wipe them out because they disgust me, O God. Now that's the modern version. What does Moses say? Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. He doesn't excuse what they've done, but notice his heart. They have made themselves gods of gold, but please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of the book. God, if you can't show compassion to them, then don't show compassion to me. You see where Paul's getting it from? Moses is saying, God, if you have to punish someone, punish me. Put the price on me. Now, God realizes Moses can't bear that price. Jesus will have to. But do you see the depth of Moses' compassion and forgiveness in the midst of their sin? This is no trivial thing they have done. But Moses' heart is not judgment, but rather mercy upon the very sinners. People had sinned against Moses because you remember why did they do oh, it? it's for this fellow Moses. Who knows what happened to him? What happened is he's getting God's covenant for you. That's what happened. He's spending 40 days fasting up there for you. What's happening is he's going to go back up and do another 40 days praying for you. Oh, who knows about Moses? But Moses' response is, Well, hey, they chunked me off, so forget about them. Moses' response is, Oh, God, have mercy on them. And God, if, if it's required, then blot me out of the book. But keep them. Great as their sin is. He had deep compassion, just like Paul. Obviously, the ultimate example is going to be Jesus. I could give you many, many verses. I'll just take one that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8-9, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is the gospel, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through this his poverty you might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus was rich spiritually and physically. He was sitting at the right hand of the Father, enjoying perfect communion with his father. But we were cut off. And he saw that, and he did not say, Well, they got themselves into the mess. Let them fix it. That's their problem. Someone else should deal with that. He went from his throne to them to give himself to us. And what was the outcome of that, I might point out? It was security, safety, riches, right? Is that what happened? What was the cost? How did he become poor for us? Come on. He died. Surely God wouldn't expect those whom God has blessed to even give to the point of dying for those who are without, would he? I mean, that would be like the gospel was true if that were the case. Is that not the exact example that Jesus has laid down for us? And I want you to know, Paul here is talking about a collection for the poor the physically poor, and he is using the two together. And his ultimate example of our physical and spiritual poverty being met is Jesus himself. This is the mission of Jesus, to come to we who are physically and spiritually poor and to meet our needs. Now, we could also look at at countless examples from the history of the church, the countless unnamed who spread the gospel in the early centuries of the faith, And I point out again that to keep the faith alive, what was oftentimes the cost— Their own death. I'm going to remind us of this throughout this series. Is it possible for the mission to be accomplished at no cost to us? It is not possible. That's the great American dream. This is going to go on, and it's not going to cost me. Not going to happen. The gospel has always spread by the church being willing to suffer and sacrifice. In fact, in the early centuries, so different than the way we put it, Tertullian said the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church. The more they kill, the more the faith spreads. That wouldn't sell three copies if you wrote a book called that today but it's what the early church believed. And we wonder how a group of 120 ragtag people in Jerusalem conquered the entire Roman Empire in the span of a couple of centuries while they were being crushed by the government because they were willing to pay the price. Monks and missionaries who took the gospel to barbarians and Vikings and distant lands, And I might point out, down through history, this is just a freebie for you. When Israel was called to go to the nations and to be a priest to the nations, and they did not go, what happened? God brought the nations to them. You don't go to Babylon, I'll bring Babylon to you. When the church in Jerusalem was staying there and not following the call to go to the far corners of the earth, what happened to the church in Jerusalem? Persecution comes, and the church, In the Roman Empire, if the church wanted to be insulated, God brought the Romans into contact with them. When the church had conquered the Roman Empire and we just wanted the barbarians to stay away, guess what happened? The River Rhine can freeze and the barbarians can come to Rome if Rome won't go to the barbarians. When we finally conquer the barbarian tribes with the gospel, there's now another group, the Vikings. And if we don't go to the Vikings, guess what will happen? They will sail the season. They will come to us. I'll let you work that out, how that might be in our own day. But I will tell you, God has a several millennial long pattern of this. You will willingly go to them, or I will bring them to you, because I will be worshipped by people from every tribe and language, every people group on this earth which would we prefer, go to them willingly or have them show up at our door? Because I can assure you the pattern through all of church history stretching back 2,500 years and more is if we don't go to them, God and his providence will bring them to us. The gospel will go forth. Now, there are others. John Knox, uh, you know, there were believers and missionaries in the Reformation. One of them was John Knox, who cried out to God, give me Scotland or I will die. That was based on the prayer that Rachel prayed, give me children or I will die. Knox said, what I want is I want spiritual children. I want Scotland, and if I don't have it, I will perish because I want it so bad. The modern missionary movement where people devoted their lives You know when when missionaries originally went to Africa, how they usually, what they used for luggage, their version of Samsonite? It was a coffin. Because over 50% of them that went died. So the simple way is you don't take extra luggage, you just take your coffin. And that's how they went. Who wants to sign up for that movement? That's how the gospel penetrated. C. T. Studd wrote a poem that captures the spirit of mission. It's just four lines, but I love this poem. Some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop about a yard from the gate of hell. That's the spirit of mission. That's passion for God that leads to compassion. Now, let me talk about the need for compassionate mission today, because you might say, Well, I can understand that we had that in the past, but our world's so different today. Let me point out a couple of things. Number one, the huge number of poor and suffering in our world. I'll talk a little bit about physical poverty and suffering first. Eighty percent of the world's population right now, this moment, lives on less than ten dollars. A day. Now you can say we got higher costs to live, and you can. It doesn't change it. $10 a day. 80% of the people living today. 50% of the children in the world today, the ones we got upstairs right now in our air conditioned rooms, 50% in the world live in poverty. And poverty is beyond what Americans can even picture. UNICEF says 22,000 children are going to die today because of their living in poverty. Poverty means no food to eat. No basic medical care. It's dangerous to be less than five years old. For most of them. 1.8 billion people not have a water source within one kilometer, that's six-tenths of a mile. So imagine a day when you go home and you turn on your faucet, if you had to walk six-tenths of a mile to get that water, who thinks you would change your water usage? Here's the statistics. Because of that, they use only 20 liters of water a day. That's five gallons a day. Who thinks they could live on five gallons of water a day? Now, you probably have no idea how much you use. I'll come to that in a minute. In the United Kingdom, the average person uses 50 liters of water to flush their toilets every day. Two and a half times that for flushing toilets. Now, the statistic has the United Kingdom. I don't think in Britain they have a higher rate of flushing toilets than the rest of us in the Western world. In America... The average person uses 600 liters a day. You are going to use today 30 times the amount of water of 1.8 billion for the bee, people. you got to walk half a mile to get a cup of water. You take care of your water. It's so foreign to us. I've been in Niger twice. And you're pulling water up by a rope by hand in a leather pouch from two hundred and fifty feet below the ground and pouring it into buckets. And everything you do, all your cooking, all your washing, all your cleaning, all your bathing has all got to be done by what you pull up. And by the way, it's almost always women. Hours a day just getting water the poorest 40 percent of the population in this world is 5 percent of the income 40 percent so if i took this part of the room and said you all get five percent and the other half here gets 95 percent would this five percent maybe complain a little bit about that what if we did a fellowship luncheon and we'll do that next time will take 40% of the people and give them 5% of the food. That's what's happening right now. Over 1 million people are going to die from malaria this year. Less than 1%, now I'm going to say this as a guy who took an oath of office, went to the Naval Academy when I was 17, was a Marine, so you know I'm not anti-military, but this statistic breaks my heart. Less than 1% of what is spent on weapons each year would pay for every child in the world to be in school. 1%. And we're going to stand in front of God and say, that seemed like a good idea. The top 20% of the wealthiest people in the world account for 76.6% of private consumption of resources. Water, food, fuel, 76.6% is used by 20% of the people. And in case you're wondering, where are we? Are we in the 20% or the 80 What are we? We're the 20%. No matter who you are in America, you're in the 20%. Okay? We're using almost 80%. The bottom 20% use one5 In other words, they're surviving on a few liters of water a day. Almost no food. No resources. Now, that doesn't even account for the immense number of suffering through the sex slave trade, drug addiction, depression, alcoholism, broken marriages, the other problems that we can even run into right here with your next-door neighbor. Okay? That's the world in which we find ourselves. Now, that's just mainly the physical side of things. Let's turn to the spiritual for just a minute. Only 28% of the population of the world today identify themselves as being Christian. That means three out of four people self-identify that according to the scripture, they are on the way to hell. Three out of four. Now, We haven't even turned to the one out of four who say they're believers and are they actually believers. But three out of four openly admit they are not. They have rejected the only path of salvation. Evangelicals are less than 10% of the world's population. There are 7.4 billion people in 16,500 people groups. Okay, A people group is a unique language and culture that they kind of hang together and identify, and they're the best people to reach. There are 16,500 of those. Some of those are split because, like, the house of people exists in Niger and Nigeria, so that would be kind of twice. If you just count them once, it would be 9,800 unique people groups. Almost 6,700 of that 16,500 groups are unreached, which means they have virtually no access to the gospel. It's almost 50% of the people groups in the world. It's not just that they're not believers. If they wanted to be a believer right now, they have no access to it in the first place. As we sit here worshiping this morning, 40.5% of the world's people groups are unreached. Over 2 billion, with a B, people are in people groups with few or no known believers. So when I tell you that they, if they woke up this morning and said, I want to know how to know Jesus, they don't know anyone who can tell them. There's no one they know can walk to. We can click on 58 radio stations, TV stations, read it, leave being the hand. They have none of that. 65 to 70% of the world's population live in religiously restrictive countries. That means they're in these people groups and they live in a country where they're not even allowing people to come in from the outside to tell those people. They have nobody in their group that can tell them, and they won't let us come in to tell them. Do we have deep sorrow and unceasing anguish over that fact? Now, the fact is, and here's the amazing thing, many of the unreached are also among the poorest and most suffering. So the task of reaching the lost and the task of reaching the poor turn out to be the same task. Overwhelmingly, when you go where the poorest of the poor are, they have not embraced the gospel. They have no access to the gospel. And when you go to the places that have no access to the gospel, you are also going to the places with the deepest physical poverty and suffering. So once again, it shows it's not really two separate tasks. A passion for God and his name to be known leads to a compassion for the people, and we find both physical and spiritual poverty in the same place, which shouldn't surprise us if we're thinking biblically. Now, here's some good news for you, along with some bad and ugly. Christians will make $42 trillion this year on the planet, $42 trillion. So if we just say the Christians kind of tithe on that, they, they give 10% of that, roughly. How much money would that be? $4.2 trillion, right? But Christians will actually give $700 billion this year, which is about one-sixth of that is what we're going to give which, by the way, is the same amount Americans are going to spend on Christmas this year. We're going to spend as much money buying trinkets and junk that will be disposed of by next summer as Christians give totally, Not, not to relieve the things I've talked about, like getting people clean drinking water, just to buy junk. Total missions giving out of that $42 trillion will be $45 billion. About 6% of our giving. That's what we give to reach all of these people, except for it's really not what we give to reach all of these people. Because almost 97% of Christian giving, or $677 billion of the $700 billion, Stays within the local area where it was given to. So we give to ourselves is largely what we do. Home missions account for 2.9 percent, which tells you we're almost all the way gone. Giving to the unevangelized world, we're giving a whopping 0.3 percent. That's what we're giving, which is 2.1 billion out of 42 trillion dollars this year. Now, friends, I remind you, I'm not saying this to to girls. What that shows me, the first thing that shows me is our passion for God and His name is so low. How can this be? Reaching unreached people groups, the people that have no access to the gospel, if they wake up now and say, I want Jesus, they have no way to do it. We are giving a whopping $450 million out of $42 trillion. That is .001% of Christian income, which means if you make $100,000, you are sacrificing for the kingdom by giving a dollar. To reach those who have no water, no food, rampant disease, dying early, And worst of all, no access to the gospel. And we will say, I am passionate about Jesus and his mission. And what would you say if I told you that? If you said, Brother, are you passionate? I said, I am a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus. I am running after Jesus. He is central in my life. And you said, how much do you make? And I said, I make $100,000. And you said, how much are you giving so that those who have never heard have a chance to hear? And I say, I'm giving a dollar. What would you think of my commitment? Am I serious about that? How about if I said, I am serious about putting away for retirement because Linda and I are going to travel the world? We're going to do this? And and you said, how much do you make? And I said, $100,000. You said, how much you you putting away every year? And I say, a dollar. We're going to have like $40 when I retire. Sounds idiotic, doesn't it? It's what the church is doing. Now, let me say, it's not what this church is doing. And it will not be what this church is doing. If you threw 100 bucks in the plate this morning, close to $20 of that by the end of the year is going to be going, and a big portion of that is going to be going to the least reached places. That's why we're involved and engaged there. But I want to remind you that is what is central. If Christians would devote themselves to prayer and giving and going, the mission could be finished in the lifetime of many people who are sitting here listening to me today. I'm going to bring up the statistics later. There are hundreds of churches for every unreached people group hundreds of them. Bay Ridge doesn't have to take on one people group by herself. We can join with like 599 other churches for one people group. That is a doable task. So how do we apply the word? What does this mean for us? And I don't, I don't want to leave it just heavy, though I do want this to be challenging to you and me. Okay. The question is simple. As those who proclaim to have a passion for God and his glory, am I moved by the need in our world? See, we don't like hearing those statistics, do we? I know some of you are thinking, I should have stayed in bed this morning. We don't like hearing them. But folks, there's a woman walking half a mile right now to get water. And if she's thinking about Jesus, she has no access to find out who he is. And that's reality, whether you and I want to pay attention to that statistic or not. It's real world. So do I see it? The the scope of need in our world is staggering, and I want to remind you, this is not just statistics. It's real people. That four-year-old Suffering with malaria to the point of death right now and malnutrition could be one of my grandchildren not a not a face, not just a little statistic, a real living breathing person. Those people I'm talking about have no access to the gospel i I love that my grandkids come in. one of my grandchildren, Owen in particular. Every time he walks in the door, I know the first words in his mouth. Papa, would you read the Bible to me? And he climbs in my lap, and he opens up, and he picks which Bible story he wants me to read. Those kids have no Bible. Not in their language. They don't know anybody who can do it. Friends, unless the gospel breaks through, they are lost. And the church, We have a lack of compassion. And the reason we do is a lack of passion itself. Do we see this? Does it move me to compassion action? Do I recognize every one of those people is the image of God? The image of God is suffering this way. The image of God is dying of malnutrition. The image of God is being blown apart In needless, stupid war, the image of God is lost with no access to know the one in whose image they are made. A lack of compassion for the lost and suffering belies a lack of passion for the name and glory of Jesus Christ. So the question is, do I have passion for Jesus and compassion for the lost and suffering? And I can't split them. When you got one side of the coin, you got the other. And if I don't have compassion for this, the answer is not go out of here and feel guilty because that's going to wear off. You're going to forget this as the week rolls on. I'm not unaware of that. Friend, it means we need to reflect on the gospel. Jesus did not see us in our need and say, Father, let's turn to more pleasant thoughts. We've still got most of the angels. Not what he did. He said, I'll go. I will go. But it's going to mean a life of suffering. I will go. It's going to mean giving up the glories of heaven. I will go. It's going to mean taking on poverty instead of riches. I will go. It's going to mean being rejected by the very people you are going to. I will go. It's going to mean they ultimately will uh, crucify you, kill you. I will go. How else will they know? How else will they be saved? Friends, we have to reflect on that. And if we reflect on that, it will create a passion in us and a compassion. And what we're going to do is we're going to take the last couple minutes here and we're going to pray for the lost and suffering. We're going to be looking at a number of ways to engage in mission because it's not just prayer. There are ways that we educate ourselves. There are ways that we give financially. There are ways that we engage personally involved in this. But today I want to focus on the heart issue of prayer. I want to tell you that there is supposed to be coming out, I believe it's coming out right now, a special issue of The Bridge that's going to give you some links to where you can look up all these statistics. I, didn't, I don't just know all these things off the top of my head. There are organizations that work to make this kind of information known. I'm just giving a couple of them. Okay, The Joshua Project, Also, Operation World. And I encourage you to take a look at that. If you've never done it, when I was a young man, I had no interest in the very topic we're spending this entire fall talking about. None. And then I picked up a book named Operation World, and it wrecked my world. Because I spent the next couple of years every morning praying for different nations. And I started understanding they don't know the gospel. They have no access to the gospel, their law. I encourage you, look at those links. Pay attention. If you don't know any other way, let Operation World guide you. Pray for our missionaries. Pray with us each week. And what we're going to do now, if you can go ahead and stand, we're going to pray together. And I want to encourage you again, as always, this is not a time to listen and engage my prayer and say how good Brett's prayer is. You need to be engaged. Friends, there are almost 2 billion people right now who have almost no access to the gospel, and many of them live in countries where it is shut off from the gospel. And we need to be in prayer regarding that. What's going to bring those walls down? Prayer. That's what's going to do it. And you and I have to be engaged in that. For the glory of God's name, Father, this morning, I know this was difficult for all of us to hear. We live in such a broken, fractured, suffering. And Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. This earth produces bountifully. There is more than enough food, and yet there are hundreds of millions who are starving. There is more than enough space, but we are fighting over square inches of There is more than enough uh, resources for us to get the gospel out, but we are blocking its way. We are not giving to see it go. Father, we are a broken world. And, Lord, I begin with the gospel. I know this is on your heart because you sent your Son to live for us and to die for us. And he is raised and seated at your right hand, and he is interceding for us even now. Lord, we are here because Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor. We are here because he extended himself for us. And so, Lord, we take heart that you are not a God who stays far off from our suffering, but you engage and you come and you are here among us. And so, Lord, I pray that out of that, your Holy Spirit would prick and prompt us. Lord, we, we guard ourselves. We don't like hearing these things. Father, I didn't like looking them up. I don't like having to focus on that. I want to live in my own comfort zone, and I want to be insulated from the problems of the world. But Jesus, I am grateful you did not remain insulated from our problems But you came and I pray, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit would work that in us. Father, I thank you that this congregation for a couple of decades has been engaged in the cause of mission here to the farthest corners of the earth. I thank you that this congregation has given financially, that they have prayed, that we have sent teams out, that, Father, we have participated. But, God, I confess and admit my own heart can wax over. It can grow dull. I can forget, I can hide from that suffering that is there. And God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to become desensitized so that I am living for the American dream rather than the kingdom dream. I don't want to be so committed to myself and my own prosperity that I'm like the people in the parable of the Good Samaritan and I pass by on the other side. Father, I want to engage and I want to engage further. Lord, I pray that you would prick our hearts for that. And, Lord, I pray for those lost and suffering. I pray that you would bring down the walls, Father, I pray that places where there is no access to the gospel, that you would get the gospel in. Father, I pray. For the flood of refugees that are fleeing out of Syria and other places where there was virtually no access to the gospel, and they are now coming into access for the gospel. I thank you that many of them have heard and responded to the gospel. And Father, I pray for us that our first thoughts would not turn to political things, but rather would turn and say, what is God doing to get the gospel, to get relief to those who are suffering and are dying apart from Christ. Father, I pray that you would work that in us, and I pray that you would work the gospel into those situations. Lord, I pray for countries all over this world where the gospel has not taken root, that it would take root and that it would flourish and that there would be change and transformation among them. And Father, I pray as we move through this series that you would continue to challenge us. And Father, I pray... God, I pray for my own heart when that discomfort sets in and I want to run and I want to to turn my mind to other things. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would not allow that to happen. Father, I pray that you would keep me fastened in. And I pray that, Lord, when we hear your voice saying, Who will go? Father, we would not say, I hope someone else does, but we, like Isaiah, having had our lips cleansed by the cri- the coal of Jesus Christ fresh from your altar, that we would stand up and say, here am I, send me. Oh God, hear our prayer. O oh God, work these things in the name of Jesus Christ for your glory and for our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to close with a word of benediction, and I want to remind you, as I said this, I know this is a difficult teaching today. I'm going to close with the blessing that God gave to Abraham. Who in here is an heir of God's covenant promises to Abraham? You all raise your hand. You an heir? What I'm about to speak over you is God's promises to you. God wants and will bless you. And why is he blessing you? So that you can be a blessing to others receive the blessing of God, and then go and spread it. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Go forth in the blessing of Jesus Christ to be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.